All right, we have been going through Luke chapter uh, by chapter. We are in chapter 10 this morning. Uh, Last week, chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, and it specifically said he gave them power. He gave them power to heal sicknesses and power to cast out demons. And uh, they loved it, and it was an awesome thing. But then uh, the rest of the chapter went on to show that even though they were apostles and full of power, they were just men like everybody else. And then we wrapped up the chapter on what it takes to become a disciple of Jesus. Well, chapter 9, he sends out the 12. By the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, 12 apostles are representative of the 12 tribes. In fact, Jesus told them that uh, they were going to lead the 12 tribes. So it's possible that each of the apostles comes from a different tribe, but there's nothing in the scripture that says so. But we do know that they represent the 12 tribes. Now in chapter 10, chapter 9, he sends out the 12, chapter 10, he sends out 70 more. Now, I'm going to talk about the 70 because 70 is a significant number for many reasons. But depending on which Bible you have in front of you, one Bible is going to say 72 and the other is going to say 70. And that's a little confusing. I'll explain it the best I can in just a couple of minutes. But for now, I'm sticking with the number 70. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. You know, Jesus had a plan. It wasn't just that he was preaching the gospel, stumbling around from village to village hoping to meet people. He has a plan to save the world. And I've shared with you in the past that plan is spelled out starting in Genesis chapter 3, that a woman is going to have a special son. Chapter 12 of Genesis, he starts a new nation called the Jewish people, and that through them, the Messiah would come, chapter 49. And on and on it goes. And here, even while he was walking the earth, he had a plan. He had 70 cities or villages he wanted to visit, so he sent out disciples two by two to prepare the way for him. 70 is a significant number. Um, The great... Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish Supreme Court from the days of Jesus and before, had 70 members in it. 70 plus a president, so I guess you could say it's 71, but it had 70 members in it. And that number 70 for Jewish leadership in the nation of Israel actually has biblical roots. It's not like they just said, hey, let's have 70 leaders on our Supreme Court. They went all the way back to the Torah, to the book of Numbers. Listen to what it says in Numbers chapter 11. This originates from the law of Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. And I'll come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you'll not have to carry it alone. You following? Moses needed some help. God said, choose 70. And we see in another place that 70 leaders went with him up to Mount Sinai. It wasn't just Moses. He brought 70 leaders up with him. So that that experience not only had other witnesses, but now these 70 leaders are elevated in stature because of their experience. The great Sanhedrin that led during the days of Jesus actually believed they had an unbroken chain of leadership and authority succession all the way back to Moses. I don't see any strong historical evidence that there was constantly 70 from Moses up to the days of Jesus, but at least they have biblical authority for their position. 
70 disciples sent. 70 in the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. 70 is also the number of nations in the ancient world. So God tells Noah, take your three sons and their wives, go on the ark, I'm going to destroy the world. And he does. The whole earth is flooded. And all we have is Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These three boys of theirs begin to multiply. You know, they have uh, their wives, they have children, their children, children. Their grandsons numbered 70. So the 70 grandchildren started the new nations. So according to Genesis, the ancient nations of the world number 70. And they're enumerated in Genesis chapter 10. Well, depending on how you look at the genealogy or which version you use, some break it down in 70 and some break it down in 72. So it's interesting that if it's 70 in one version, then Yeshua sends out 70. If it's 72 in another version, Yeshua sends out 72. I just find that interesting. I don't know exactly why there's a discrepancy between 70 and 72. I didn't care. So I didn't take the time to do all the research. You can if you want to. I'm not going to go study all those 70 names and try to figure it out. Well, when the 70 come back, they're pumped. They're excited. They can order out demons. They can heal people. They saw people responding to the good news of the kingdom of God. People were flocking to the gospel and they were thrilled. And they came back and they shared with Jesus what happened. About eight verses worth. You can go home and read that. The one thing, well... Before he sends them off, though, I want to step back a moment. Before he sends them off, he gives them some instructions. Several verses of that, too, and you can go home and read that. But there is one thing I want to tell you that he tells them. So he sits down with these 70, you know, in a big room, out under a tree somewhere. It says, I'm going to send you off into these cities. Here's how I want you to behave. First of all, don't take any money with you. Don't take an extra cloak with you. Don't take an extra stick with you. And he gives them their, you know, their mission parameters. You can go home and read that. The last thing he says to them is this. He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, doesn't just reject me, but the one who sent me. You're following what he's saying to these disciples. Your words are my words. My words are your words. If they treat you poorly, it's just like they treat me poorly. If they don't listen to you, it's just like they're not listening to me. It's like they're rejecting God. That's some responsibility, some authority, some, some power, isn't it? These are not God's spokesmen in the little. They're God's spokesmen in the large. If they reject you, they reject me. Wow. How would you like to have that clout? The Son of God makes you an ambassador of His and says, your words are as good as mine? I got news for you. You do have that clout. You are Jesus Christ's ambassadors. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are Messiah's ambassadors. It's as if God were making His appeal through us. We beg you on Messiah's behalf. Get right with God. All right, so 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Apostle Paul says, we, believers, are the ambassadors of Messiah. Well, if we're his ambassadors, 
then what he said to the 70 ought to apply to us too. He who listens to you listens to Jesus. He who rejects you rejects Jesus. It's, it's for real. You realize that you are the lifeline between humanity and heaven. You are the stopgap between humanity and hell. You have the words of life. You can tell people how to get right with God. Wow. But it's not you just can. You must. Because if you don't, who will? You're the ones that know. They don't know. So God has sent us to tell them. Now, I'm not saying you're all evangelists since you go door to door and tell everybody the gospel, which would be awesome. Do it if you want. Some of you are more inspired, gifted to do that. But all of you have friends. We all have family. We all have opportunities. So here's what you do. You wake up in the morning and you say, God, use me today. And if I'm too scared, give me boldness. And give me wisdom. Help me share the good news with somebody. And you pray that every day and just watch what God will do with you. So, in chapter 9, he sends out the 12. In chapter 10, he sends out the 70. In 2 Corinthians, we learn he sends us out. From 12 to 70 to millions. And he who listens to you, listens to him. And he who rejects you, rejects him. By the way, you know, the Bible says the gospel is offensive to some people. It's just the way it is. It's the message that offends some people. Some people will get saved. Some people will laugh you at you. And some people will ignore you. And some people will get offended. That's as it may be. The gospel is offensive to people. That's okay. What's not okay is if you are offensive to people. When you preach the gospel, you are being sent in the name of Jesus. Preach it with the heart of Jesus, with the spirit of Jesus. Be his true representative. Okay, now, the 70 return. Eight verses talk about the return. I don't want to deal with them. I just want to deal with one verse. It says they come back filled with joy. And this is the only verse I've found that talks about Jesus also being filled with joy. Verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said... I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. It's kind of cool. The 70 come back full of excitement and joy, and Jesus is full of joy. He's sharing in their joy, or they're sharing in his. I don't know how to look at it. I just know there's not a lot of places, it's the only one I can think of, that says Jesus is full of joy. What made him so happy? Because they went out and preached the gospel and people listened. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that Jesus says, people are like sheep. And if you've got sheep and one of them gets lost, you'll leave those sheep to go find the one. And if you find that one, you celebrate as though it's been a, you know, a big thing. And in the same way, the Bible says, there's rejoicing amongst the angels in heaven over one sinner, one lost person who comes back to God. The angels party when somebody gets saved. This is what makes us happy. 
This is what makes Jesus happy. This is what made the disciples happy. When people come back to God. Because he sees us like a bunch of sheep scattered on the hills. And there's wolves out there too. Sheep are not good alone. They need to be together with sheepdogs watching them and a shepherd. If not, they will be devoured. It's just a matter of when. So when they come back to the fold, it makes him filled with joy. And you have to ask yourself this morning, are you part of the fold? If you're not sure, assume the answer is no. And come back to Jesus. Ask him to be your, your shepherd. Now I want to point something out in verse 21. It said, um, you have hidden these things from wise and learned and have revealed them to children. Obviously, the word children refers to young people in most contexts. That's not what it means here. First of all, even in English today, children doesn't always refer to young people. How many of you are over 30, but you are somebody's children? You see what I'm saying? Children doesn't always refer to young people. In this context, I know it doesn't refer to young people. Why? Because these disciples weren't sent out just to young people. So they wouldn't just be rejoicing about young people. But mostly because you learn what a word means by the context. Here's what it said. You have hidden these things from wise and learned and revealed them to children. So children are the opposite of the wise and learned. It's got nothing to do with age. It's got everything to do with attitude. And here it's specifically a, a spiritual attitude. Is there something wrong with being wise and learned? No, that God wants us to be wise and learned. But there's this arrogance of a class of people who have high education. Not all people with high education are wise and learned. I'm not saying that. But a lot of the wise and learned think they're better than everybody. They're smarter. They're um, more like, you know what I'm talking about? And for whatever reason, that often comes with education. Now, God wants us to be educated. The Proverbs tell us to pursue wisdom and knowledge as if it was treasure. So God is not at all putting down wisdom and knowledge. But it's talking about this attitude of arrogance, the wise and the learned, versus everybody else who are spiritually just children. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 18, if you'll recall, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Being a child, spiritually speaking, means you're humble and receptive to God. Uh, a person who has humbled themselves, repented of their sin, and chosen to follow Jesus Christ, that's a child, spiritually speaking. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. You are little children to Jesus. So yesterday, I'm in the bistro with a couple little girls. They're somebody's granddaughters. A guy who's about 70-something and myself. And I guess she learned in her class that we're all God's children. Because, you know, talking to somebody about three or four years old is like talking to somebody who barely speaks English. They're like from another country. You kind of understand what they're saying and you kind of don't. They're not quite fluent. So I think what she told me is she learned in her class that we're all God's children. She said, we're God's family. I said, that's right. And then I said, I'm God's child too. And she looked at me. You're old. 
I said, yes. And then this 70-some-odd-year-old guy said, I'm God's child, too. And she was, like, perplexed. And I said, you're right, we are old. But to God, we're like little children. I don't know if she got it or not. But it was fun talking to her. All right, now we're in Luke, and we switch gears over in verse 25. A different topic altogether. The 70 have returned, they've rejoiced, they've talked about it. Now we're on to a new story. On one occasion, an expert in Jewish law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, what's written in the Torah or the law of Moses? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Then Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right. So he's an expert in Jewish law, and he comes up to Jesus to test him. Now, that, don't assume he's a bad guy because he's testing the Son of God. He doesn't know he's the Son of God. He's just some popular teacher that everybody's following, and now he wants to see if he's, you know, really worth following or not. It's exactly what you do. You do the same. When you meet people from other religions or other churches, immediately you want to know, are you my brother? What do you believe? Ah, uh, that's what you believe. Ah, so you're in a different family. I mean, we don't want to put you down, but you're not one of us. Oh, you believe Jesus died for our sins and rose again? Yeah, he's the son of God. Yeah, brother! So, hey, Jesus, how do you think we get right with God? Now, Jesus does a very rabbinic thing and a very Jewish thing. He answers his question by asking him a question. So the guy says, Jesus, how do we get saved? Jesus says, you tell me. How do you think you get saved? And the guy says, well, I think love God with all your heart and your neighbors yourself. Jesus says, you got it. Do that and you're fine. Very simple. That should have been the end of the conversation. But it was not. By the way, um, before I tell you how the rest of that conversation went, I think I need to explain something. I tell you the way to be right with God is to love God and love your neighbors yourself, and that covers it. That assumes a lot of doctrine behind it, with that, which that Jewish man would have had, being Jewish and all. You know, I wouldn't tell a Hindu, just love God and you'll be fine. He doesn't know about sin. He doesn't know about Jesus being the Son of God. He doesn't know about his death, burial, and resurrection. All that would have to be in it, too. And today, I wouldn't just tell a Jewish person, love God and you'll be fine. Because loving God, for us, assumes, implies that you're also loving Jesus. But to a Jewish person today, it would not assume that or apply that. In the context, it's a given because he just said, he who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus and the Father are a package deal. That was implied in the context. But today, you might have to explain that to somebody. Jesus said elsewhere, um, he who honors the Son honors the Father that sent him. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So it was a very simple answer for a knowledgeable man in a Jewish context. Today, you can't just give that as your gospel. You need to explain more. But for those of you who know the gospel, it's a good, simple answer. Love God, love your neighbor, that's our religion. That could have been our song instead of all that other stuff. All that other stuff gets you in the door, and then it's just simplified. Love God, love your neighbor. 
Verse 29, though, this is what the guy said after Jesus said, you know right. He said, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself, so he asked, who is my neighbor? What does that mean? Well, apparently, he's not feeling justified right now. So apparently, the answer to that question could help him feel justified. He doesn't know who his neighbor is. Most people don't know who their neighbor is because this is a horrible word to use in modern English. When the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's not good English. It might have been good English 100 years ago. I don't know. I, didn't, I don't know what it means 100 years ago. But right now, you and I think of the neighbor as the guy who lives next door. So you love the guy who next, lives next door, you're good to go. In a similar sense... Ancient Jews had a category of what neighbor meant. It was bigger than the guy who lived next door. To them, it was all other Jews. Love your fellow in your community. But that's not what neighbor means either. See, obviously the guy didn't know because he asked Jesus. There was some data, debate about it. Let me tell you what neighbor means. Bad word. If I were to translate the Bible today, I would not translate it, love your neighbor as yourself. I would translate it, love others as you love yourself, or love your fellow human being as you love yourself. A neighbor, it's a horrible word, but it just means someone else. It has nothing to do with their close proximity to you, your, your house. Any other human being you ever encounter is your neighbor. All right? So this guy didn't know that. He wanted to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? You know, I've been doing all right with this group of people is implied in the question. So Jesus answers him. He says, well, there was this guy walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Do I have a picture of that desert scene there? There is a road, and you're looking at it, that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is the ancient road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's down there, kind of, it's hard to see by that green stuff. Let me get out my laser pointer here, and I'll try to show you the road. It's kind of like right in there. All right? As you can see, very inhospitable environment. There's no houses around here or hotels or way stations, no picnic tables. This is just, you know, a rough road to get from point A to point B. And you can see, looking at it, how it might not be the safest place. Would be a good place to hide behind one of those old shrubs or hills that clock somebody on the head and steal their stuff. So Jesus said that's exactly what happened. There was a guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and some robbers came out, beat him, took his clothes, left him half dead. Why did they take his clothes? Because clothes were valuable. Um, I watch my back when I'm wearing my leather jacket in certain parts of our country. There have been times where people have been beaten up to have their Jordans stolen right off their feet. Some clothes are valuable. Back in those days, all clothes were valuable. You steal somebody's coat, a cloak, you're, you're, you've got some money. So they, who knows whether they got anything else off the guy, but they took everything he had, left him half dead, half naked, and a priest passes by, sees the guy, next picture, doesn't do that. That's the Samaritan guy. The priest walks by, sees the guy, and does one of these numbers. 
Totally ignores him. Priest, most religious of all people, serves in the temple. Ignores the guy. Well, then a Levite walks by, second only to the priests in the hierarchy of Judaism. He does the same thing. Doesn't see him. How can you walk by somebody half dead on the road? What kind of lack of heart and compassion do you have? Now a Samaritan comes by. Here's the Samaritan. I don't know how to explain Samaritan to you. Because there's nobody in our society that we can equate with a Samaritan. Just think of the despised lowlife that you wouldn't even want to be in the same city with. That's what they considered Samaritans. They would walk around Samaritan villages. They did not like Samaritans. So Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, talking to a Torah scholar, putting down the priest and the Levite, says, but a Samaritan walks by, tends to the man, pours in oil and wine, binds his wounds, lifts him up, puts him on his donkey, escorts him to the nearest inn, Gives the innkeeper two silver coins, which is a lot of money, and says, take care of this man. When I come back through, if it wasn't enough money, I'll give you more money. Then Jesus does that very rabbinic thing again, asks another question. Who do you suppose was neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? And the Torah scholar says, I suppose it was him who showed him mercy. He didn't say, the Samaritan. <laughs> And Jesus said, you're right, go and do the same. This Torah scholar who asked Jesus some questions might have thought a neighbor was just a fellow Jew. There's this precedent in Judaism that a neighbor is only your fellow Jew. One of the most famous rabbis who ever lived, outside of the Bible, of course, is a guy named Maimonides. If you're Jewish, you've heard the name. If you're not Jewish, you might have heard the name. Very famous. Wrote the 13 Articles of Jewish Faith, which are sung in the Saturday synagogue service every week all over the world to this very day, even though he lived in the Middle Ages. Wrote a book called the Mishnah Torah, just commentary and thoughts on Torah. In that book, he said this. As for Gentiles, with whom we are not at war, their death must not be caused. However, it's forbidden to save them if they're at the point of death. If, for example, one of them is seen falling into the sea, he should not be rescued. For it's written... Neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor. But a Gentile is not your neighbor. Now, you've probably got a few thoughts going through your mind. First one I want to share with you is, obviously, there was a debate on who a neighbor was. And that's really all the only point I wanted to make here. But you're probably thinking, wow, that guy was a racist pig. Let a Gentile drown to death in the sea? We've got no obligation to save them? Okay, we can't kill them, but by all means, don't save them. You know, to the Jewish mindset in the Middle Ages, a dead Gentile was kind of like a dead rattlesnake. I mean, you're walking down the side of the road and you see a rattlesnake injured. You're going to heal up its wounds and let it go? No, because if it doesn't bite you then, it's going to bite somebody sooner or later. Let the thing die. 
Now, you might save a, a bunny rabbit or a deer, but a, even a dog, but not a rattlesnake. Because Gentiles have been abusing Jewish people for thousands of years. In fact, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. You all know that? But what you might not know is in 1492, all the Jews were kicked out of Spain. They were told either convert, die, or leave. And that's just one instance in Western civilization on how Jewish people were treated. There was this thing called the Inquisition, where Jewish people were tortured. It, it was ugly. And so you can imagine why somebody who knows that that's how Gentiles treat Jews, you can imagine why he would say, just let them die. But that's wrong. You can't condemn an entire world of people because many of them are bad. You don't know if that one's bad. Jesus has spent all this time showing us Samaritans are good, showing us centurions are good, showing us the Gentile mothers are good. You, never, you can't judge a book by its cover. The Bible doesn't give us the permission to assume somebody is evil. And even if they are, it tells us to love our enemies. So this guy was wrong. I just want to share with you the point that in ancient Jewish thought, there was this division of knowledge as to what constituted a neighbor. And I want you to know better. A neighbor is simply a fellow human being. So Jesus made some profound points in his story. Four of them. I'll share them with you. I'll be done. Number one, just because a person is religious doesn't mean he's righteous. You see a nun walking down the street. You immediately assume, oh, look, a holy person. Don't assume that. She may be, she may not be. All she is is dressed different. That's all you can know from that person. You see a guy with a leather jacket, colors on his back with big wings saying, you know, bikers of America. Don't assume that's a bad person. Maybe, may not be. You don't know. All you know is he's dressed different. Jesus' point is just because a person is religious does not necessarily mean he's righteous. You've read the news about all the things that have been going on with Catholic priests these last few years. Now some rabbis are caught up doing stuff, and you know Muslims are always in the news for doing evil things. Religion doesn't equate with righteousness. I know a lot of religious people who are righteous. I'm just saying, just because you're a priest or whatever, a pastor, doesn't mean you're a righteous person. Number two, a Samaritan can be more loving than a priest. Again, I don't know what you're going to fill in for Samaritan in your life. Just think of somebody lowly and despised. How about a hobo? A street person. But somebody who's in, even intentionally a street person because they don't want to work. They're just lazy. Can be more righteous than a priest. Number three. A Samaritan can be a neighbor, not just a Jew. Okay, how do we put that into our context? It's not just your fellow Christian. It's not just people who are nice to you. It's anybody you ever encounter. That is your neighbor. And it's even more loving and more profound when it's somebody that hates you or that you hate. And by the way, go ahead and love on somebody you hate and see how long you hate them. And number four, his last words to this guy was go and do likewise. Go and do the same. So my last words to you, go and do the same. 
So I said, we sang this song. That's our theology. That's what we believe. And I said, no, man, love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That's our theology. That's our, our ministry statement. What about our mission statement? Go and do. Three words. How about we just take one of them out to make it short? Go. Do. That's our mission statement. Please bow your heads. Let me pray over you. Lord God, I say with the prophet Isaiah, here I am, send me. And I pray for Emily. She said, here I am, send me. And you're sending her to Ecuador. She's going, she's doing. And may this just be a start for a whole lifetime of going and doing. And for each one of us in the sanctuary, listening online, on the radio, television, I just pray that you'd put within us first the love of Jesus, then the love of our neighbors, our fellow human beings, and the mission to go and to do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And if you share that prayer, then say with me, Amen.